Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Isaiah chapter 1. I am still sort of kind of introducing. In order to understand the early sections of Isaiah, we have to kind of understand the geopolitical layout of the Middle East at this moment. If you look at Jerusalem, Judah is surrounded, Israel is surrounded by a series of smaller countries And Israel has had a series of wars and skirmishes with these countries, Ammon and Moab and the Moabites. But then just beyond them, you have the major cities, the major superpowers of that era in the Middle East. To the south, you've got Egypt. And to the northeast, you've got Assyria. Now, as Isaiah is beginning his prophetic career, It's sort of the last days of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon exists at this moment, but it's not that big a deal. Babylon is going to conquer the Assyrians, but that hasn't happened yet. And in fact, much of the wealth that Babylon amasses in order to go conquering these other nations is the wealth that they take from the Israelites especially when King Hezekiah decides to show off all his wealth. So at the time, at the moment that we're beginning to read here, you've got Assyria. They have yet to conquer the northern ten tribes, but they're threatening. And then as we go through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see that God is expecting the southern kingdom to recognize his punishment and his judgment of the northern tribes and that they would repent as a result of seeing the judgment of God on their brethren. But they don't. They don't repent. They don't change. And so the first 39 chapters of the book is really about God predicting in advance what he's going to do to punish both the northern and the southern kingdom and how he's going to punish them through Assyria and through Babylon. And in fact, God even takes credit for the fact that he's going to bring up the Medo-Persians and that that first Medo-Persian king is going to allow them to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and that becomes a very major thematic element of the book of Isaiah. Not only the impending destruction that's going to happen under Nebuchadnezzar but then the rebuilding that's going to happen as a result of Cyrus the king being brought up. And so God is demanding a second time then after Judah is allowed to come back and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple, which we've talked a good deal about here. He then expects, okay, now they're going to see my hand of providence and they're going to see my kindness. They're going to see how I have restored them. 
And he points to the fact that he has sovereignly, in control of all humanity, he has brought up the Medo-Persians for the express purpose of restoring them back to their land so that they can rebuild the city and rebuild their temple. So again, the cry to repent, to change, to return to God comes back again. And they don't do it. And so then when you start from chapter 40 forward, you start seeing the ultimate plan of God. And the ultimate plan of God includes all that messianic stuff. Emmanuel, God with us. The one who's going to die and who's going to bear the sins of Israel. Who's going to heal the nation. He's the one who's going to have the government on his shoulders. All of that kind of language so that God is then saying... I'm going to be faithful to everything that I have promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You people continue to be rebellious and hard-headed and refuse to repent of your evil ways and your foreign gods and your foreign wives. But, but I'm going to do it ultimately. And the ultimate way he's going to do it is by sending Emmanuel. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, also killing Emmanuel, who is then going to live again. And then you get to like the last 10 chapters of the book and you see all of this very eschatological, forward-thinking, glory of Israel stuff. So that's the real overview of the book and you're going to see shadows. You're going to see references to that ultimate glory all the way through the judgment passages. Chapter 1 starts right out with calling Israel to judgment. But even in the midst of the judgment passages, you find God saying things like, I'm going to make you as white as snow, even though your sins are like dyed red scarlet wool, which is impossible to make white again. I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to make you sinless and white as snow again. So right here in the first chapter, immediately we see the promise of God forward-thinking, eschatologically saying, I am going to do everything that I ever said I was going to do. But I'm going to take you through these periods of punishment and these periods of scattering, these periods of foreign nations conquering you. I'm going to take you through all that in order to punish you. The ultimate end of that series of punishments is what we call the Great Tribulation that Jesus spoke of, the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which is why Jeremiah would refer to that as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time of Israel's specific trouble. So the point of kind of walking through that big panorama of the book of Isaiah is to get all Israelological on you again and say the theme throughout is God's dealings with Israel, specifically with Judah, the southern tribes. As he's beginning to speak, Amos is in the northern tribes still speaking. And as I told you last week, Micah is going to be a contemporary of Isaiah. So the northern tribes have their own prophets, but, but Isaiah is a prophet to the southern tribes. And he's reassuring the kings in succession that God is going to take care of them. God is going to protect them. Just trust him. And yet they continue in their rebellious ways against God. And so the ultimate promises of restoration, the promise of a new restored temple 
and the very familiar language of a new Jerusalem all occurs here in Isaiah because God originally is dealing with Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah and then the destruction of Jerusalem and then the occupation of Jerusalem and then the rebuilding of Jerusalem and then Jesus comes along 70 AD and there's again the destruction of Jerusalem and yet at the end of Isaiah there are all these promises of a new holy H-O-L-Y a new completely revamped Jerusalem in which is going to dwell righteousness all of those promises belong to Israel and there's simply no way to say that they belong to anybody else there's no way to read it contextually and then carry it over into the New Testament look at the number of times that Jesus and Paul quote directly from Isaiah when making arguments about Israel there's just no way to say well okay when Isaiah made these predictions when Isaiah was speaking of Israel he meant national Israel but then when you get to the New Testament and you see those quotations from Isaiah come up again suddenly at that point it means the church or some other group of people other than national Israel it can only mean national Israel and as we're going through this book for however long it's going to take certainly more than a year 66 chapters is going to take a while to get through but as we're going through it you're going to see this very focused concentration on Israel and on Jerusalem so that it shouldn't be any surprise when you get to the New Testament and you get to the book of Revelation and you read about New Jerusalem that language has already been established by Isaiah because the history of Isaiah is God's dealings with Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem again and ultimately a new Jerusalem wherein righteousness dwells and that's exactly what you see described in the book of Revelation uh, how you miss that connection absolutely befuddles me if you just allow that the whole of the Bible Old and New Testament is one story being told by one author and you allow that author to define his own terms then when he talks about Israel and Jerusalem he can only be talking about stop me when this is too obvious Israel and Jerusalem Amen. that language and the definition of the language doesn't change okay so we're in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 and if you think that was a tad Israelological I, I haven't even started I haven't scratched the surface this book is going to give us plenty of opportunities to just get Israelogically Israel. all over the place yeah. <laughs> the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos that is not Amos the prophet concerning Judah and Jerusalem so what is this vision all about it tells you right there at the beginning you don't even get out of the first sentence and he tells you what this is about this is about Judah and Jerusalem visions that he saw during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah all through each of these four kings you're going to see Assyria growing in power at one point the northern tribes are actually going to align themselves with Assyria 
causing the king of Judah to become very scared because, boy, that is a combination of a whole lot of people that could absolutely overwhelm Judah. And so you're going to see these series of threats, these series of nations, these series of people groups who want to come down on Judah. And whenever there's a good king on the throne, like King Uzziah or King Jotham, now Uzziah, I have to put a parenthesis on there, a little asterisk. Uzziah started out fine. He started out a very good king. Toward the end of his life, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, we read in 2 Kings. And as a result, he died a leper. But as long as there's a good king on the throne, you can go back and you can look at the historic battles, and Israel always wins. As long as they continued doing things God's way, God protected them. But then you see kings like King Ahaz come up, and he's an evil king, and they just lose, 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 lose until a good king comes up again like Hezekiah. And then Hezekiah's son turns out to be worse than all of them, and in fact it is Hezekiah's son who is responsible for the death, apparently, of Isaiah. So Isaiah is dealing with a succession of good and bad kings, but he is crying to each of them to repent, to turn from their ways and turn to God because there are positive benefits to turning to God. Not only will he protect you from your enemies, he'll protect you from wild animals, he'll make sure that there's plenty of grain and plenty of grapes and plenty of water and rain, and you're going to have successful harvests. He's going to take care of you if you will just follow after his rule, his law, let him be king over you as the king of Judah. Even to the point where, and I've already mentioned it, by the time you get to verse 18, God is practically begging them and saying, come on, just be reasonable. I will do for you what nobody else can do for you. Come, let us reason together. Think about what you're doing. So, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and it starts right out with God holding Judah guilty. We read this last week. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And I pointed out last week that when God speaks, he speaks to much more than just the human beings that are on the planet. He has the ability to speak to the entirety of his creation. He can talk to the animals. He can talk to the trees. He talks to the wind. He's the one who calls the, the demonic hordes and the hosts of heavens. He's the one who has the ability to call planets and stars out by name. When he speaks to his creation, it is much more than just speaking to human beings. Sometimes we like to think that we are the know-all and the end-all. We are the crown of creation. And whenever God speaks, he's speaking to me personally. But God can actually hold his whole creation Guilty, and he can hold them as his listening audience because don't forget that the creation itself fell when sin entered in through Adam and Eve. And there were actual structural geological differences that happened on planet Earth, like the ground bringing up thorns and weeds as a result of sin on the planet. So when God speaks, he speaks to the whole of his creation because he is the sovereign creator and master over all of it. 
so he can say, listen, O heavens, hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up and brought up, and they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Essentially, he is saying, my people are denser than brute beasts. Brute beasts who I have created understand who their master is. Israel doesn't understand who their master is. Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away from him. By the way, that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, you can look at any of the previous books in the Bible prior to Isaiah, you won't find that particular name, that particular designation. It is Isaiah who is the first person to identify God by the positive nomenclature. He's the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One that belongs to Israel, the Holy One that is the unique God of Israel. And not only is he uniquely the God of Israel, but he is also completely holy. As you know, by the time we get to chapter 6, we're going to read about the angels flying around the head of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's one of the chief characteristics of God. I recall that last week I said to you that Isaiah has a very, very high view of God. He has a very high theological viewpoint of who God is and what God is like. He holds God in magnificently high and sovereign esteem, And so in trying to find a name, an identifier to say, this is the God I'm talking about, he could find nothing better than he's the God of Israel and he's completely holy. He's the Holy One of Israel. And then that contrast, when you look at the contrast between the sons of Israel act corruptly and they have abandoned Yahweh, that puts them in direct contrast with the Holy One of Israel. And so when you read that they despised the Holy One of Israel, you can see that they are at complete opposition with one another. In other words, when God decides to punish them, they are rightly punished. When God determines to judge them, they are correctly judged because their position is described here as being in direct 180 degrees opposition to everything that is holy God. The Holy One of Israel stands in opposition to the the corrupt sons of Israel, and they have turned away from him. Verse 5, where will you be stricken again? I told you last week, that's kind of like God saying, everything about you is corrupt. How much more can you possibly be corrupt? But it also may be a question like, why would you continue like this? As much as I have already punished you and corrected you, why would you continue in those ways and be stricken yet again? You would think that a wise person at some point, it's the same reason that we discipline our children, is that eventually they realize, oh yeah, when I'm bad, I get knocked around by mom or dad. I should probably quit being bad. 
And if I quit being bad, I don't get knocked around. Well, life is good then. And so God is potentially asking the same question. Why would you continue in your ways so that I would strike you yet again and again and again? Where will you be stricken again? Now listen to this description of them. As you continue in your rebellion, why will you be stricken again? Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even to the head, there is nothing whole, nothing healthy, nothing sound in it. There's only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. There's no part of the body that he didn't include there. From the top of your head to the sole of your foot to your heart is sick, your head is sick, your brain, your thinking ability, the seat of your emotions, everything about you is decaying and sick and depraved. You're covered with bruises and welts. You've got raw, open wounds that aren't pressed out to get all the pus out of them, and they haven't been bandaged, so they're open. Have you ever, have you ever had a, a scab that you peeled off too soon, and then the skin under it is real sensitive? He's describing their whole body that way. Oh, we're talking about your foot right now. That's <laughs> probably true. And he says, that is your whole body. You're covered with bruises and welts and raw wounds that haven't been pressed out. They haven't been banished, and they haven't been softened with oil. You are just a walking sore. You are just in such a state, such a condition, that there is nothing good, nothing whole, nothing healthy about you. And I pointed out last week that you have to know that that is the condition of Israel. When God looks at Israel, that's how he sees them, as completely and utterly sick in their depravity. Completely and utterly, there's nothing attractive about them. There's nothing about them that is whole or sound or healthy from top to bottom, head to foot, they are completely covered with sores and welts, and that is just why it is so important when you get to Isaiah 53 and you read God creating the solution to Israel's constant rebellion against him. When he does send Messiah and Messiah dies, one of the things that is accomplished is by his stripes, with his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah says that to Israel nationally. And they would know what it means because he started out by saying, God sees you as holy and completely sick and diseased and dying of your disease. And there's no solution. You can't fix yourself. So then God creates the solution by sending Emmanuel, God with us. And then through his death, that results in his stripes, which heals Israel. You get that? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of pounding on that at this very moment because by the time we get to Isaiah 53, it'll be a year from now. And I want you to remember that Isaiah starts by telling Israel what their condition is. Your condition is that you're holy and completely sick. Your depravity has made you completely godless, unholy, diseased. There's no wholeness. There's no soundness in any of you. That is the astounding part of the declaration by the stripes of Christ, you're healed. And far too often in churches, people will read that as if it means because Christ suffered the stripes that he suffered, 
that that somehow guarantees us physical healing from any diseases that we may encounter in our life. And that's not at all what Isaiah was getting at contextually. He is declaring, here's the Israelogical part again. I told you I'm going to keep coming back to it. He's declaring Israel's really sick, and by Christ, Israel gets well. And that's a declaration that far too many people utterly ignore. Mm -hmm. But don't forget what Paul said in the book of Romans. Christ is the surety of all the promises of God made to Israel, to the uncircumcised. And so when Christ dies, he guarantees the satisfaction and the health of Israel so that they are fit to be in the new Jerusalem to come. And that's why the big picture is so important. And by the way, I can prove to you that the interpretation, the common interpretation of by his stripes we are healed as being because he bore the stripes we have physical healing guaranteed in the gospel. I can prove to you very quickly that that can't be the right interpretation. Anybody here ever been sick? Yes. Okay, that's the proof right there. That's it. That can't be the right interpretation because it's not working. And yet the correct interpretation is going to work. The correct interpretation is guaranteeing a future for Israel and a future for the new Jerusalem through Christ because all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. See how the Bible all fits together? Okay, so they are so guilty. Verse 7 says, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. At the moment that he said that, Israel was living in relative peace and prosperity. At that moment, before the death of King Uzziah, everything was okay in Israel. And so you can see why the people would think, we must be doing okay because we're living all right. Everything is good. Our lands are not desolate and our walls are still up and we still have a temple that we go and worship in. So God must approve of us. And yet, here's Isaiah declaring, your land is deserted. Your land is desolate. He's speaking future tense, and he's obviously talking about Babylon. He's talking about what's coming. Babylon is going to come and burn the city. That actually did happen. Babylon is going to come and devour your fields. That did happen and left Jerusalem a desolation. That did happen. So Isaiah is saying, because of your guilt... Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. And it is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Very specific. Non-Israelites, strangers. We know it's the Babylonians. Are going to come in and take over your land because of your guilt. You will notice that when God speaks, he speaks about it present tense. This is reality. This is going to happen. Now, it's not going to happen until 40 years later into Isaiah's lifetime. And yet Isaiah speaks of it as if this is a right now reality because God who does not live in time can speak of things that are not as if they actually are 
And he can speak of them as being presently true, even though they haven't come to their fruition yet. And we see that very thing in the New Testament. We're, we're comfortable with that idea when we read that we, what is this, Romans 8, 28 to 30, when we read that we've been justified, we've been called, and that we've been glorified. Well, we're not glorified yet, and yet in the mind of God, present tense, we are glorified. Same thing is happening here in Isaiah. Your land is desolate, and your cities are burned, and strangers are going to devour your fields, and they're going to make it a desolation. It's going to be overthrown by strangers. God knows for a fact that's going to happen because he is the one who declares the end from the beginning, and he is the one who has the almighty power that he can exercise to make sure that his proclamations come true. He is the only being in all the universe with whom words are things. So when he speaks things, they occur. But just because they don't occur right now doesn't mean they're never going to occur. And the example I use frequently is to say the word of God is Christ is going to return. And so we believe that Christ is going to return. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened for more than 2,000 years. But it's going to happen because it was said by God with whom words are things. And that is the exact same argument that I use for, and God is going to create a new Jerusalem wherein righteousness dwells, and the gates are going to have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Israel is going to finally occupy the new Jerusalem. Now the other nations, the Gentile nations, are going to have those great blessings flowing to them, but those blessings are going to flow through Jerusalem to the Gentile nations. And so we will be included in those promises, but those promises are not primarily ours. Those promises belong to Israel, belong to Jerusalem, and therefore God can say these things about Jerusalem, and it's true. I'm just going to press one more point here. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Were they at the time? No. Were they going to be? We know the history. We know the Babylonians came in, and we know that that exactly happened. Okay, so we know that whatever Isaiah said in advance, he spoke of it in the first person as if it was happening right now. He spoke of it as a present reality. Well, you're going to see things like that all the way through the book of Isaiah, where you're going to read present realities that have not happened yet, and yet they have to happen just as real, as definite, as historical as Babylon happened Everything else that Isaiah predicts is also going to happen, and that means restoration for Israel. There's just no way to avoid that. Make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. And this I'm just using as evidence. Verse 7 is just evidence. That's why I'm stressing that it hadn't happened yet. But we know that it did happen. There are going to be other things in Isaiah that haven't happened yet. But we know they're going to happen. Verse 8 the daughter of Zion, that is a reference to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If you don't know what a watchman's hut in a cucumber field is, or a shelter in a vineyard, all you have to know is that he likened it to a besieged city. In a cucumber field, in any kind of field, in a vineyard, there would oftentimes be 
a little hut, a little lean-to that would be there for the vine dresser, that would be there for the people that were working the field. And it was really for the purpose of keeping the rain and the sun off them. But it was impossible to defend. It was a very rickety structure, and you could overthrow it very quickly, very easily. So God is now saying, that's Israel. You're trusting in your walls, your high walls. You think you're going to defend yourself with your horses and your armies. But I'm telling you, you're nothing more than a hut in a cucumber field. You're going to be knocked over easily. Because once God turns against them, it's not going to be a great bit of competition to overthrow them. Again, as we see with Babylon coming in. And interestingly, Assyria, once Assyria conquers the northern tribes, Assyria tries to come down into Judah. And in one night, an angel of God wipes out the entire army outside the walls of Jerusalem, exactly like Isaiah is going to predict is going to happen. Don't worry, God's going to fight for you. He's going to protect you. So God has every ability to make Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem completely defensible. He can protect Jerusalem if he chooses to. And yet Babylon comes in, completely overthrows them. Why? How? Because God takes his hand off and says, all right, this is your punishment. But God has already demonstrated his ability to protect them. So they again should have repented. They should have turned back to God. They should have said, oh, well, you are our protector. We walk outside our our walls and there's all these dead people because God fights for us. That should be reason enough to turn back to God and back to his law and follow what he says to do. And they're so hard-hearted, they still don't do it. So it's no surprise that God brings Babylon down on them and treats them like a hut in a cucumber field. Verse 9 says, Knowing all this destruction is coming, the land being desolate, the fields being devoured by strangers, Jerusalem itself being overthrown like a shelter in a vineyard, you would think from those descriptions that that means Israel is going to be completely wiped out. Jerusalem the daughter of Zion, residing there in Jerusalem, everybody's going to be completely wiped out. But verse 9 contains the promise, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. So what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? The wrath of God fell, and no one survived. Mm -hmm. And so Isaiah says, we would have ended up the same way. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been completely destroyed. We would have been completely left out were it not for the fact that sovereign God who has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is never going to utterly and completely wipe out Israel and therefore the Lord of hosts. By the way, that name, the Lord of hosts, sometimes you'll see the word Sabaoth. Have you seen that word before? What that means is the God of the armies of heaven the God who is in control of all of his creation, the one who controls every living being. He is the Lord of hosts, the commander and the master over everyone and everything. Look at the language so far that Isaiah has been using to describe God. 
the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of hosts. He has this very high theology, this very high perspective on God. And lest that God, the sovereign God, the one in charge of everything, had left us a few survivors, which he gives God credit for. The very fact that anybody survives can only be up to God. If he hadn't done that, we'd be like Sodom and we'd be like Gomorrah. So now, not surprisingly... When Paul is writing in the book of Romans and he's answering the question about whether God has abandoned the people whom he foreknew, Paul goes right to that passage that we just read, Isaiah 1.9, in order to demonstrate that God has always had a remnant within Israel that he has kept to himself. Go over to Romans 9.9 for a moment. I said Romans 9.9. Go to Romans 9.29. Let's see, for context, just so you understand what Paul is actually arguing about. At chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh? Who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that is the argument. Do you understand the argument? Do you understand the context? What he's talking about is Israel, national Israel, his kinsmen. And now he's going to describe that even though God has sent Christ, and even though the majority of Israel has turned away from Christ, nevertheless God has kept himself a remnant for himself. Look at verse 29. And just as Isaiah foretold, Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. See, so you see how Paul wove in that bit of Isaiah into his overall argument to say that God has always, in the entire history of Israel, he has always kept for himself a remnant. And even at those times historically where Israel should have been utterly wiped out, they weren't wiped out because of the faithfulness of God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's never going to destroy Israel off the face of the planet, and he's always going to keep a remnant to himself. So Isaiah would say, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. So whether it's Isaiah or whether it's Paul, they're making the same argument, which is that God is always faithful to Israel. And do I need to point out that means national Israel? Mm -hmm. That does not mean some strange amalgam of the church. It means Israel, national Israel. God has demonstrated time and time again his faithfulness to Israel. Proven by, go out right now and find yourself a good solid Hittite. Go out and try to do it. 
See if you can do it. Yeah, you can't do it. As a people group, they've, they've disappeared into history. Okay, so go out and find yourself a Jew. Can you do it? Yeah, you can do it immediately. You thought of three people the minute I said it. There are Jews scattered all over the world because God continues to be faithful in keeping Israel to himself through all of human history as other people groups have risen and fallen and disappeared into the annals of history. Nevertheless, God remains faithful to Israel and he is going to remain faithful to Israel all the way to the new Jerusalem. And that is the theme of Isaiah. Okay, so starting in verse 10 now, God is speaking to Jerusalem in particular, and he refers to them by a nickname. He refers to them by the nickname Sodom and Gomorrah so that they recognize their guilt. It would be easy for the Jews to point at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and to go see the pillar of salt. They would be able to say, well, see, those people were really, really bad. Those people were so rebellious against God that God had to destroy them with fire coming down, hail that burst into flame. That's that's the judgment of God on those terrible people. And then God turns around and says, that's you. You're Sodom. You're Gomorrah. That's how guilty you are. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? Why would they be sacrificing in the first place? Well, they were doing it because God said to. They were doing it because the law required it. But now listen to how he responds to them. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? They are doing exactly what God said to do. Three times a year, you have to come to Jerusalem. You have to come to the temple. You have to come and keep the feast days. And God said, I'm sick and tired of you doing that. I'm sick and tired of you bringing burnt offerings and rams and cattle. I don't want any more bulls or lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, when you come up to Jerusalem, notice he describes it as you trampling on my courts. You're just stomping down what is mine. So here they were doing the very thing that their religion and in fact God himself through the law of Moses required. And yet, it wasn't the doing of it. It wasn't the rote repetition of it that was making them okay with God. Because their heart wasn't in it. Their faith wasn't in it. They were just simply doing it, thinking that that was somehow satisfying God. Maybe they could abate the wrath of God. Or maybe God might bless them if they went and did it. At very least, just don't hurt me. I'll show up and give you some rams. I'll show up. God sees through that. God sees through empty, vain, repetitious, pointless religion. Mm. 
And there is an awful lot of empty, pointless, vain, repetitious religion in the land even to this day. God sees through that. He knows your heart's not in it. He knows that you're just going through the motions. And you're going through religious motions doesn't impress him in the least. He goes on. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the assemblies, the feast days, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. So it's not enough for you to just come to the solemn assembly. It's not enough that you just come three times a year, but you come with all your iniquity. You come as sinners. You come as rebellious people. And standing before me in my courts is nothing more than trampling down my courts. And you can kill all the animals you want and bring all the offerings you want. But if your heart is not right with me, I don't want anything from you. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your animals I'm sick of you doing these repetitious things over and over because your heart is not with me. You're not obeying me faithfully from your heart. You're just doing it because you're fearful that I might punish you. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Now, by the way, let me add one little theological aside here, a little parenthetical comment. When you talk to people about Sabbath keeping, and I don't know how many of you very frequently talk to people about Sabbath keeping, but every so often I will get into email discussions slash debates with people about Sabbath keeping. And people who believe in Sabbath keeping will invariably say, but the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. And that means that it is part of the moral law of God. And so because God rested on the seventh day, we're to rest on the seventh day. And that's why it's in the Ten Commandments. Because when discussing the Ten Commandments and trying to explain to people that the Ten Commandments were the formation document of the Old Covenant, and therefore they were fulfilled and satisfied by Christ, and that we are not under that covenant or those external rules that weigh down over us. When discussing that, one of the first evidences that I point out always is that in the New Testament, you see nine of the Ten Commandments repeated within the New Covenant context, but you don't see the Sabbath. Instead, what you see in the book of Hebrews is that the Sabbath was a foreshadow of Christ who would come so that we could rest from our works and rest eternally to enter into that rest that even David couldn't enter into. And that's when they will argue back, no, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's a, it's a moral thing. It's something that God does and therefore we have to do it. Except that Isaiah 1 here says that God is sick of new moons and Sabbaths. So does it sound like it's an absolutely required moral obligation as a creation ordinance? No. no. No, it sounds like it was part of the law that God put on Israel. And therefore, he could say, your offerings, your behavior, your new moons, your feast days, 
and your Sabbaths, all of that you're keeping by the law, and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it because you're not keeping it through faith. Instead, you're just doing the rote behaviors, and God gets sick of rote religion. I hate, verse 14, hate. God pulled out the word hate. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. Wow. God says, I'm weary of you weighing me down with your new moons and your festivals and the way that you profane these things that I put in front of you. The gatherings three times a year were supposed to be feasts. They were supposed to be festivals. You come and you eat your tithes in front of me, which we will talk about this coming Sunday. You come and you basically have a time of celebration before me. You come and you celebrate the good and the glory of God in your midst, but they had turned it into religious obligations to the point where they just tired God out and weighed God down. And God said, I'm, I'm weary of carrying you. I'm weary of bearing up under your appointed feasts and your festivals and your new moons, and they are a burden to me. So, so here's the result, verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, this was a very common motion in the temple to stand arms outstretched toward heaven. You read that even Jesus, when he prayed, sometimes prayed that way, that he looked up to heaven, raised his hands to heaven, and spoke to his Father who is above. God says, when you spread out your hands in front of me, I'll hide my eyes from you. I won't look at you when you do that. You think you're putting out your hands to try to beckon me, to call me, to encourage me to respond to you. I'm not even going to look at you. And yes, even though you multiply your prayers, lots of prayers, constant prayers, I will not listen. Okay, so that kind of answers the theological question. Does God hear every prayer that's ever prayed by everybody? Does God hear the prayers of heathen? Not only does God not hear purposefully, not hear every prayer that people send up toward him, sometimes his own people, Israel whom he has chosen. He says, I won't look at you and I won't hear you. Why? Because of their constant rebellion against him, combined with their keeping of rote, empty religion. I'm going to keep pounding on that because there is so much rote, empty religion on the planet. And yet in the midst of your rote, empty religion, you can raise your hands and you can cry out to God and you can make a multitude of prayers to him and he's not going to look at you and he's not going to listen to you because again, it comes back to where's your heart at? Are you actually worshiping God? Are you recognizing the value of God internally and responding to God for the, the joy of having him in your life, in your midst? blessings that he's brought into your life is that why you're kneeling down before him or are you just going through the stuff are you just doing whatever your church tradition is most every church I've ever been in knew when to stand up sit down fight 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 they knew when to kneel they knew when to recite the end of whatever recitation they were doing they just knew how to go through the process 
but there was very little actual worship toward God. And God says, I'm sick of it. Now that should tell you something. The same way that in the book of Job, God was angry at Job's friends because they didn't say what was right about him. And I said, now pay attention to that. God is very insistent that you say what's correct about him or else you stir up his ire. Here's another one of those teachable moments in the Bible where God says, pointless, repetitious, empty religion does not impress me. In fact, it makes me angry. And in fact, I will turn away from you. So it's not just religious experience. It's not just go to church, do the stuff. It's not playing church. It is the actual attitude of the heart and of the congregation in singing to God, in praying to God, in worshiping God, in respecting God, in reverencing God, in holding God in high esteem. And he knows how to see through you and your intention. And he knows whether you've just gone to church because, well, that's what you do. We're here in the South, a notch in the Bible belt. And so everybody goes to church, so we went to church. He sees through that. He knows how empty that is. Mm -hmm. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Okay, were they literally covered with blood? No. Were they raising blood-stained hands to him? That's what he saw. When he looked at their hands, he saw them as guilty, iniquitous hands. Hands that shed blood. Hands that were murderous. Hands that were unclean. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Okay, now we know doctrinally, we know theologically, that it is God who has to give the gift of repentance and faith. We know that ultimately all of our salvation is a result of God imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. We know that God is the first cause and the continual cause in the salvation of everybody. But if you don't see that we are also responsible to react to the salvation that God has given us, then you still don't understand either the biblical God or what actual biblical Christianity is. If you have fallen off that ledge of genuine antinomianism, then you have said, well, you know, it's all up to God, so I don't have to do anything. And yet here God is telling Israel, yeah, it's still me. I'm still God. I'm the one that's going to save you. I'm the one that's going to protect you. Yes, I'm the sovereign. I'm going to do everything. But meanwhile, you clean up your life. Meanwhile, you respond to me. You make yourself clean. You remove the evil deeds from your sight. You cease to do evil. And I think that is as valid a statement from God today as it ever was in Isaiah's day. Yes, we know that it is God who is doing the saving. Yes, we understand that it is all an action of Christ. But then Paul tells us, then all the New Testament authors tell us, 
and now walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now walk according to the declaration that you've made. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that we do as Paul said, take every thought captive. Take it all captive to Christ and then walk out your life according to the Christianity that you profess. So there is no contradiction with God saying here, you are guilty and now wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He's holding them responsible to repent, to change their ways, to do better. And he has every right to expect that of his people, that they would make every effort to walk according to the grace that he has already given them. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And that brings us up to what I mentioned earlier, verse 18. God finally just says, look, be reasonable. Just come, reason with me. Just sit down for a minute and let's talk this out. Reasonable people would understand my argument, says God. Come now, let us reason together, you and me together. Think about what you're doing, where you are, the judgment that's coming, and change your ways. That just makes sense. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. They will be white. I don't know if you have seen, there are YouTube videos that you can go see. I've seen pictures through the years of women dyeing wool in various places and in the Middle East. And once you take white woolen fabric and you dye it, has anybody here ever dyed a sweater, a wool sweater or something? Once you dye it, it's never getting white again. Once you dye it a color, especially scarlet red, you're never getting that out. Even if you try to bleach it, you're getting pink. There's nothing you can do to make it pure white again. God poses that impossibility to Israel and says, you can't do it. You can't make yourself completely white as wool again, but I can. So a reasonable person would come to me for that. A reasonable person would expect of me that I would make you clean again. And I will. I'll join you right where you are. You repent. You start washing yourself. I'll, I'll be right there. I'll be with you every step of the way. I'll make you clean again. And remember, he's talking here to the nation. He's talking to the whole group of them. And he promises, I'm going to make you white again. I'm going to make you clean, pure again. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, then you shall eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, so here's your two options. 
I'm God. I'm going to either clean you up or I'm going to kill you with a sword. Be reasonable. Make a choice. And that's where he leaves them at this moment. That's where we will pick up next week with how the faithful city has become a harlot. And basically all God is doing so far is just laying out his case. He's just showing Israel how incredibly guilty they are. He's demonstrating to Judah and Jerusalem that they are incredibly guilty, especially based on the fact that they're going to see God pour out his punishment on the northern tribes. And yet they are not going to repent in the south, making them doubly guilty. And yet God is standing there saying, look, reasonable people would recognize that coming to me is a good thing. And that makes you worse than brute beasts because even brute beasts know their master and you don't know me. So that's the state that we leave Judah in and that is the state from which God is going to speak through Isaiah to Judah because of their remarkable guilt and you have to feel the weight of their remarkable guilt to understand the phenomenal promises and blessings in the last 10 chapters of this book where God promises eternal righteousness and holiness to Israel in the new Jerusalem. So that's the journey we're going to take through the book of Isaiah. Okay, I guess that was still kind of introduction, but now I think hopefully you'll have a better sense of what this book is about and hopefully stir your interest. Questions? Um, you, you talk about uh, rote religion, it was the phrase you used here about how the heart wasn't in it. And I've been reading through the Psalms lately, and David is very mindful and intentional about, about his heart, where his heart is. He sees that as an important aspect of his praise and his worship to God. You know, saying things like, search my heart, incline my heart. He's that's always at the forefront. He's aware that yeah. his heart needs to be uh, a part of it. That's part of his prayer to God, is that God helps him with his heart and climbing it to proper worship. Yeah, absolutely. All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.